For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Amen. <clears throat> um, I've sometimes wondered what my last sermon ever would be. Thankfully, I don't have to answer that question yet, as long as the Lord wills tomorrow to come. And hopefully I won't have to answer it for a long, long time. But I do get to practice it today. We all know, of course, famous last words from movies or books, how significant and motivating they can be. We also do see this in in Scripture, as uh, Jack gave the example of Epaphras, uh, Paul found it very difficult for him to leave the churches that he had planted, and he would always give strong words for them to remember when he left. In Acts chapter 19, it actually says that he prolonged his speech because he was intending to depart from them the next day when he was in Troas. That was when Eutychus fell out the window in the middle of the night, um, so I think that gives me permission to go longer today to make up for the six weeks that I won't be here. Uh, I'm just joking. But I tell you, man, I got a lot more that needs to be said about these verses that I ain't going to cover. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot here. But I have chosen this uh, intentionally. Last words hold weight. They are to be well remembered. And I've already told you what those last words are last week and for what I want us to pursue the next six weeks and what I hope we'll pursue for the rest of this church year. My prayer for us is that we will be humble and that we will serve one another. That we will be humble and that we will serve one another. I know that that's not terribly deep or insightful or sagely, but I do hope it will hold some weight and you'll remember it well over the next several weeks. Last week we covered verse 3 in pretty good detail. We'll go back and review verse 3 real quick, and we'll do just as we did last week and walk through this verse by verse. So verse 3 again says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul begins applying what it looks like From the first two verses, the command to give our lives as a living sacrifice, right, for the glory of God as as a form of worship, Uh, this is how we apply verses 1 and 2. This is how we do it. And first he says you have to deal with yourself, and then we'll deal with how we treat one another. First, for self, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought, which we talked about means to be not high-minded, head in the clouds, not living in reality. It's a form of pride. 
Instead, we ought to think with sober judgment. We are to give our lives for the glory of God. We must first humble ourselves before Him in order to do that. Humility is a prerequisite then for service in the church. Say that again. Humility is a prerequisite for service in the church. Before Paul gets into any of the gifts, church membership, all that good stuff that I love to preach on every week, he says, you got to be humble. You have to see yourself as you really are by grace so that you can then exercise the gifts of faith for the building up of the body. And this is not a new concept. Paul writes in many other places about this clothing of humility. He writes first the qualifications of elders and deacons, 1 Timothy 3. For elders, they must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. He says that they shouldn't be recent converts because they might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Of deacons, Paul requires of them that they also likewise be dignified and not double-tongued. And of their wives, or deaconesses, that they would be dignified and sober-minded. Humility is built into the DNA of church leadership, and therefore, by the church leadership, we instruct one another in humility. Right? This should be all over the blueprints of the church. Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Colossians 3, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then one more, 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do you notice about all those verses? Humility is practiced in a context with multiple people. Humility is seen in relationship, which is why humility is a prerequisite for service in the church. We've got to get that right before we go any further. Nothing makes sense till we're seeing ourselves rightly before God. Perhaps the Lord revealed some things to you since last week on pride and humility. This is the condemnation of the devil at work in us who have pride and conceit. But beloved, if you are able to see the pride in your heart, that is the grace of the Holy Spirit overcoming the accuser of the brethren. We have one who is a conqueror who has overcome all evil and sin and death and hell. So to be able to see our sin, 
we repent and we rejoice that the Lord's made us aware of it so we can move on and put on humility. We must continue to be on our guard. I'm 30 years old. Um, I don't know how old Jack is, but older than me. Do we ever have to stop looking at humility? Is this ever something we figure out, really? We need to be told this and reminded over and over and over and over again. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. All of you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We have to keep coming back to this. But if we have clothed ourselves in all humility, how do we begin giving our lives as a sacrifice? Paul's answer is you serve the church. You serve the church. He says at the end of verse 3 that we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, which I said last week is kind of a difficult phrase to interpret. But what Paul's getting at is that God assigns, he assigns a measure or a kind of faith that corresponds to certain functions in the church. This is the, the transition to the next several verses about these faith gifts in the body. And the word measure the measure of faith here is used not so much to refer to a quantity or a rank, but rather to refer to a standard. There is a correlation between the faith that God assigns and the function of that church member. And that function is based on the faith. The faith, then, is this basis of understanding how we live in the body of Christ. It, 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 it refers to what makes something acceptable or unacceptable in the, in the body. That faith dictates how we serve. So if our serving is derived from a manufactured or artificial faith, it will not build up the body. God assigns faith for certain functions. That's what it says, right? There's, there's no getting around that. But if we see it as a gift from the Lord, we won't want to get around it. He's sovereign. He's wise. He knows what's best both for us and the measure of faith that He assigns us and the needs of this body. He arranges the members, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, sovereignly. He has you here, not by accident, but because He intends for you to serve this church in a certain capacity with all humility, with a certain kind of faith that He's given to you. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's, that's, that's worthy of, our, of us to, to preach on. That's what we're going to do today. How's that work? Verse 4. Here's how it works. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And we have that word for at the very beginning, for since we've been assigned this particular measure of faith for this building up of the body, we need to understand, we need to view this individual faith that the Lord gives us in the context of a unified body, in the context of the church as one body, that is literally one physical human body, we have many members or literally body parts, right? Y'all got several body parts, so do I, right? This is anatomy 101, right? Um, so we immediately see this sense of individuality that God assigns based on our faith, but only under the umbrella of our corporate unity, okay? Individuality is fine under the umbrella of corporate unity. We're different, but we're the same. The word member is a huge word in the New Testament. People love to make the argument that church membership is not in the New Testament. Well, boy, have I got news for you, right? If you've been here any number of days, 
you know I got news for you. Um, <clears throat> except for the fact that the word member is used 34 times in the New Testament, 29 of them are in Romans and 1 Corinthians. The other ones are used in Ephesians and Colossians and James, which all validate the same use or meaning of the word, literally referring to a body part and a spiritual paradigm that we are body parts belonging to Christ's body. And therefore, belonging to this body, we belong to one another. That's covenantal language. That's we belong to Him and He belongs to us. That's church membership, right? Now, we, we want to look at dusty roles. We can have a different conversation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a covenant body of people who belong to one another and cannot be divided because Christ's body is one body. This requires reverence, commitment, intentionality, reciprocated love and affirmation. In order for us to be one, we have to know who the members are. Who are we one with, right? Church membership is thoroughly biblical, and I harp on it a lot. But I love the way that this is broken down because the stress is on these, this contrast of one and many. One body, many members. One body, many members. Verses 4 and 5 both do this. We were one in the sense that we cannot be divided. Our physical bodies are indivisible, right? Can you take your body apart and make another body with it? That, that makes no sense, right? The church ought to be the same way. You can't split a church. What does that mean? You're the body. You don't, you don't take off of a body and make another. That, that makes no sense. The body cannot be broken or separated or divided. And yet... Many members of our bodies work with diverse functions that interconnect with one another in a unique way that our differences actually contribute to the oneness of the body. This is cool stuff, man. Therefore, it is a good thing that God assigns the allotment of faith that corresponds to different functions. We need diversity in the church because it actually promotes our unity. Y'all with me? Am I getting too deep too quick? Okay. Just making sure. It's quiet today. It's my last Sunday, man. Come on. Pay attention. Y'all with me? Verse 5 shows us the deeper picture. We are not just one body. We are one body only in Christ. One body in a person. In the Lord, the head of the body. There's only one way to join this indivisible body. That is by the head who is Jesus Christ the Lord. Pastor Dave said it perfectly just a couple weeks ago. We are the only religion that is, uh, or we are, how did he say it? We're the only religion that, uh, now I'm going to mess it up, uh, the most inclusive, exclusive religion there is, right? Which means the power of the gospel is to save everyone who believes. Everyone comes, but there's only one way you come. And that one way is through Christ. He is the one head. We are one body in Christ. All are welcome, regardless of differences, but we must come united in Jesus. Above all other doctrines, above all other passions, above all other duties, He is what makes us one body. And here's where the believers who live comfortable lives outside of a local church struggle to connect the dots. To identify with a local church, therefore, is to identify with Christ Himself. Which means, what happens if we choose not to identify with the local church? 
right? We're choosing not to identify with Christ when we choose not to identify with the local church. There is obviously a church universal. When you are saved, you are saved, grafted in through baptism to the, 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 the church, right? Regardless of your letter. But Romans was written to a local church in Rome. Ephesians was written to a local church in Ephesus. Colossians was written to a local church in Colossae. Philippians was written to a local church in Philippians. He was writing to real people who knew each other, who were in covenant with one another and with the Lord. You can be saved and never join a local church and make your happy way to heaven, but you will spend your entire life being ashamed of the things that Jesus loves. And what sense does that make? Join a church. Join a church, right? Just to show us how serious this is, Luke 9, 26, Jesus says in that famous verse of not losing our souls in order to gain the world, he says after that, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So maybe you're here today and you've never joined a local church. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to be super black and white about this. But I am trying to say that is the one of the biggest red flags I can think of when it comes to the authenticity of your salvation. If you've never joined a church, but you claim Christ all these years, like something's wrong. I ha it's, again, I'm not, I'm not talking to anybody in particular, but this is just what we do if we're not ashamed of Christ. How can we claim to follow Christ if we're ashamed of His body? If we won't commit to a local church, how can I trust your commitment to Jesus? Who knows your testimony? What elders have watched over your life and ministry and helped you grow and equipped you? Who or what were you baptized into? Friend, perhaps if you're not a member of a local church, you're not truly in Christ at all. Now, I understand there are transitions, there's gaps where we may leave a church or relocate for various reasons, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who goes year after year after year after year after year after year after year and just stays absent from the body of Christ. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. What will Christ say to you when he returns? If that's you, have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, what's he going to say well done about? <laughs> who, who are you a part of? Are you ashamed to be with his people? We are one body in Christ. So really, my admonition for you this morning, if, if you're in that umbrella, don't join a church. Join Christ. Join Christ, right? Because then you'll want to join a local church. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then you know what Jesus told his disciples? You are my friends. You're my friends. Jesus came to earth to die for sinners, to make us his friends. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. According to Ephesians 1, he is now head over the church. Those who belong to the local church are those who have a friend in Jesus. Would you be friends with Christ? Would you be friends with the friends who are friends of Christ? Come and find no greater love than this, 
than to have Christ pay for your sins, give you His righteousness before God, and call you His friend. Repent and believe in the gospel today that you might know what a friend you have in Jesus and what the ministry of the local church is all about. So we're to think of ourselves corporately as this body in Christ. But individually, we're to think of ourselves, it says in verse 5, as members of one another. That means as individuals, we're always connected, right? We have a, a sense of individuality, but we can't separate ourselves from the other body parts. We're never truly separated, even when we're not in the same room. To be a member of a church is to be divinely woven and knit together with other people under the same covenant of membership, which means individuality is, is fine, but independence isn't really recognized in the body of Christ. We have to be utterly dependent on one another in order to live this out, which is why humility is a big deal, by the way, because we don't pride ourselves on dependency too much, do we? We pride ourselves on the other way of doing life. Go back to verse 2, though. What does it say? Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If we want to live this out with transformed minds, it's new people, we, we can't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. How are we interacting with one another if we think we're better than one another? If, if, if we're different, yeah, cool, good. Individual, yeah, fine. But better? No, dependent. We need one another. We need the other parts of the body. What happens if the eye says to the hand, I have no need of you? What happens if the head says to the feet, I have no need of you? That would be disastrous, right? The body would not get along at all. Pride attempts to divide the indivisible body. And what follows is most unnatural. What follows is ugly. What follows is abnormal and strange. The body falls apart. And this happens all the time in good, strong, healthy churches. We must beware. Pride affecting our relationships in the body. But alternatively, what happens when the members think with sober judgment? What happens when the members each think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? I think the opposite, something beautiful happens. A type of community that is rare and that everybody is starving for happens. A kind of community that is so uh, often sought after and so rarely found. A kind of community in which if one member suffers, all suffer together. A kind of community in which if one member is honored, all rejoice together. <coughs> what do humble people have to admit to in order for this kind of community to become a reality? They have to recognize that they need Jesus and they have to recognize that they need others. You are needful people. You need a lot. You need a lot of grace. You need a lot of Jesus. You need the other people in this room. You might not think you do. You may not act like you do. But the Bible says you do. 
utterly dependent. Humble people sympathize. Humble people look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humble people see themselves as one individual part with a unique God-assigned function under a corporate unified body of saints. Humble people marvel over the grand reality that God in His infinite mercy and kindness has decided to call them friends. Humble people gladly call the other members in Jesus' body their friends. How do you view the church? Is this a place that you visit on Sundays to just kind of get you a little something to get through the week? Maybe in some ways. Do you come with a list of critiques and wishes, comparing everything going on here to what you've seen at other churches in your past? Do you come with a sense of entitlement that this is your church, your pew, your ministry, nobody else can touch it? Do you come to church thinking to yourself, they need me or I need them? Do you come to church thinking to yourself, Jesus needs me or I need Jesus? It changes everything, right? So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul moves on in verses 6 through 8 to discuss practically what this looks like. What are the gifts of faith that he's talking about? What is this measure of faith that corresponds to a function? He mentions seven different gifts here, and we're just going to race through them. And again, there will be far more to be said that won't be said today about these things. Um, But before we get there, let me point out a few things about these gifts he's going to mention. Verse 6 says, having gifts that differ According to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. So different body parts have different uses, right? In the same way, different church members have different gifts according to the grace given to them. The word for gift is charisma, which is a variation of the word for grace, which is charis. So gift is charisma, right? Uh, A type of grace that's given. It's kind of a play on words, charisma that is according to charis. That means that this gift or use is a byproduct of grace enabled, empowered, and sustained by the grace of God. It's literally interpreted by others as a grace endowment, a grace endowment. I believe each of us are given these gifts after our conversion. Some believe that certain gifts are permanent and you only get one. Others, like myself, believe that the gifts can change over time based on the needs of the church and the growth of the believer. And that you can have multiple gifts at one time. So people land in different places here. That's just where where I land, okay? There's no indication in this text that there's only one gift per person. Every time a gift is used, it's actually plural in the New Testament. But if you interpret this differently, that's fine. How many of you have taken spiritual gifts tests, right? Several of you. I've taken several myself. Sometimes these can be really helpful. Sometimes they're just kind of a glorified personality test, right? 
there's good ones and bad ones. Sometimes they're really fruitful and they get us going the right direction. Sometimes they're more confusing and leave us actually um, more confused than we started. Uh, if it helps you, go and try that. If it doesn't, know yourself and it's okay. But what we get out of these tests are actually way more than the seven that are mentioned here, right? So I say that to point out that Paul is not giving an all-encompassing list of every gift imaginable that grace can possibly provide for every single believer, okay? Uh, there's a lot more kinds of faith functions than these seven that are given. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 give their own lists, and they don't contain all the ones here, and the ones here don't, aren't also in the other ones. So what this is doing is giving us a general idea of what service in the church ought to look like. This is the kind of stuff that grace produces in believers, right? That's how we need to think about these seven gifts. But probably the most important phrase in verse 6 is the last four words. It says, let us use them. Let us use them. The New American Standard Bible says each of us is to use them properly. Why are these gifts so important? Because they're not about us. They're about the church. We don't use them to sort of identify our spiritual gift and make us feel good about ourselves. We use them for the building up of the church. The gifts are given to us for a purpose, and that purpose is the good and unity of the church. It's not like God's given us, you know, video games and a nice pair of shoes. That's not the kind of gifts that we're talking about here. The kind of gifts that God gives are more like shovels and drills and nail guns. Nobody gets a fancy power tool for Christmas and lets it, lets it sit in the garage all year, right? You, you want to use you want to take the thing out and use it. You want to play with it. You want to build something cool. Many of us are waiting for the magic bullet to come along and grow our church. They think it will be the talented pastor. They think it will be the new program that Lifeway put out. They think it will be the, having more kids and a bigger youth group. There's no magic bullet. God has given the local church all it needs to grow and flourish. You know what it is? Charisma. Charisma. He has poured out grace to every single member, and that's all we need. This is how the body grows. We use, our, we use our gifts. I don't know if this gives us permission to call ourselves charismatics. Are we allowed to do that? I don't know. But if this is what it means to be charismatic, I'm all in, right? I'm all in. Using grace gifts for the building of the church. What's really important about how Paul describes these seven gifts is that he names the gift and he tells them how to use it. Prophecy in proportion with faith. Teaching by teaching, service in your serving, right? Contribution, contributions in your generosity. He, he, he gives the posture behind the gift. That means we need to remember as we work through these really quickly that what's just as important as the gift itself is how we use the gift. We can use it wrong, apparently, right? The manner in which the gift is used is just as important. We have to have the right gift and then we have to use it properly. You know, I was finishing this up last night with a bowl of cereal. And the, the I love a Saturday night bowl of cereal, man. Right? If, if anybody says amen, amen today, you can say it on that. Um, Saturday night bowl of cereal is good stuff. Um, I'm a cereal mixer, which maybe is problematic for some of you. But 
we have all the contents. We have the cereal, we have the milk, we have the bowl, right? It's hard to get that wrong. Um, but there are some barbarians on this earth who pour the cereal in first and then pour the milk. Oh, no. I wish I didn't know that about you now. Um, <laughs> uh, that is an improper use of cereal, milk, and a bowl. We can get the stuff right, but then we can use it wrong. And it's just as important to use it properly for the building up of the church. Otherwise, the church won't be built up. And so let's go through these extremely quickly. Number one, prophecy. He says in verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, I think this is the most difficult one of the seven that Paul references. Prophecy literally means to be foretell, to be foretell. Uh, we know that there were prophets all throughout the Old Testament, and there were prophets in the first century church. But the issue that we run into is that prophecy, of course, is a form of special revelation, divine word from God given to an individual to be proclaimed. Uh, and so we, Protestant evangelicals, believe that the canon of Scripture is closed, right? So, so special revelation works differently than it used to in these days. We don't believe that God is going around telling people new things that He's not already revealed in His Word. This, this is His Word. It's closed. So what, what, what does this mean for us now? I don't believe we have prophets like these that are foretelling in the traditional use of the word today. Others may disagree, and that's fine, but I do believe that we have proclaimers who forthtell, right? There's a difference between foretelling and forthtelling. So there's a sense in which I've been prophesying to you all morning by telling you what God says and then commanding you to obey it and listen to it. Um, so we, we need forthtellers in the body. We need people who are declaring a command from God that He has spoken and then us to take action to obey it. And, you know, there's people here that do that. And there's people here that do that wonderfully. Some go as far to almost com completely assimilate the gift of prophecy with the gift of preaching. I don't know that I go that far, but there are huge similarities in what Paul is describing here with this gift of prophecy and proclamation. So, do you love sharing God's Word? Has the Lord given you a nagging burden to herald His truth in a persuasive and authoritative manner? When you learn something new from your study in Scripture, are you running to the first person you can find to tell them about it? The church needs these kinds of people. It doesn't always have to be a Sunday sermon, but this kind of forth-telling is a grace gift from the Lord for the edification of His church, particularly in the first century, but still in a unique way today with our 66 books of all-sufficient Scripture. If that's you, do it in proportion to your faith, he says. Do it in proportion to your faith. You know what that means? It means you believe the stuff you're telling other people to believe, right? It means you believe it like to the bone. You believe all of it. There's a sense of absolute conviction for your own life what you're commanding others to believe. It means you're not a hypocrite. You walk the talk. Uh, if you're going to preach, you need to believe it through and through, with confidence, with boldness, 
unashamedness of the gospel and of the doctrine of God. Number two, service. He says, verse 7, if serving in our serving. This is why some spiritual gift surveys aren't so helpful because all of us are supposed to serve, right? Nobody gets an out on, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of serving. Okay, 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 guy. Um, Every Christian is called to serve in some capacity. We don't need a gift wrap from God in order to serve. But some of us are uniquely called to this. There are those of us that see needs because our eyes are on all corners of the church and they have servant hearts and they are just like, they're just ready to help. Um, The word is diakonos, the same word we get for deacon, right? Which we have these seven that are chosen in Acts who were given to, to meet the needs of the church. It literally means table waiters, dust kickers, People who are not afraid to get dirty, to care for others, to wait on others, to meet needs, to make things happen. And how are these servants supposed to serve in the church? They serve in a manner of service. (laughs) They serve with serving. They serve with a servant's heart, with an attitude of a servant. How does a servant operate? With humility, with submission, seeking to please the one who enlisted him. They're peacemakers. They see the needs of the widows being neglected like Acts 6, and they get after it. They, they, they bridge the gaps in the body. Imagine this kind of ministry done with a spirit of pride. It has to be done in the right spirit, right? It has to be done in the right spirit. If you're a servant, serve like a spirit. If you're a servant, serve like a servant. With three, teaching. The one who teaches in his teaching. You know, to teach is to be like Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a servant by his own description, but then his own ministry in the four Gospels was one of constant teaching. The word is used most heavily in the four Gospels. Jesus went from place to place teaching, 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 teaching. He never stopped teaching. He was always teaching. It's most almost always accompanied with teaching the Scriptures, explaining it to them. Teachers can't help but teach. God has graced them with the ability to articulate truth in an impactful, impressionable, and memorable way. They help people learn. The church needs a variety of both male and female teachers who are humble and well-versed in Scripture. Some of you might have never considered yourselves a teacher. Let me tell you, so did I, right? Um, By God's grace, a stammering tongue like mine has been somewhat helpful, I hope, to help others understand the truth in a way that I never would have thought possible. I could never do what Evie does, right, in, in, in a school environment. I'm not wired that way. But man, teaching in the church, there's, there's something uniquely God-given about it. And we can't help but do it. And how, how do we teach? We teach as a teacher. We teach to, to help others learn and grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus. And you may not be gifted to teach, but all of you are called to learn and grow. And so I would urge you to listen to teachers and to thank God for them when they teach. Exhortation, number eight, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is another reason I think you can have more than one, because come on, exhortation, how does that not fit in with prophecy or teaching at times, right, or one with another? Um, Exhortation is a strong word. It usually means to admonish, but it's also the same word used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
one who comforts, who stands on our behalf, who advocates for us, who takes care of us. This is the person who encourages, who counsels, who guides, who shepherds. This is the person who stands up for vulnerable sheep. This is the person who tells the truth no matter what. This is the person who comforts the brokenhearted, who rebukes the hard-hearted. We need exhorters, and we need them to speak up for the flock. And these people speak in exhortation with exhortation, knowing that they've been exhorted by Christ themselves. They've been changed. They want others to walk in truth. And I think these people just have a way of speaking. You know, like those kind of people, when, when they talk, people listen. You know, people like that. We need people like that in the body of Christ um, who are just well listened to and they use their voice of influence for the building up of the church. The one who contributes, number five, in generosity. Again, well, the Lord hasn't given me the gift of generosity. Come on, right? All of us are called to be generous. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 2 Corinthians Paul elaborates more on that as well. The widow who gave two pennies is called to be generous. But there are some who are extraordinarily generous. In my first year here, um, there was a guy in our church who gave Mariana a $100 bill on a Sunday morning because he saw the soles of my shoe, my dress shoes, were coming undone. And he said, go, pie, go buy the pastor a new pair of shoes. Who does that? Who does that? Generous people. People who are endowed with a gift of grace that makes them give and give and give and give and give. You know what's cool about the word generosity? It, it literally means like a towel unfolded. It means there's no parts. It means they give the whole thing. Right? They don't give a partial amount. They, they, give, and they give it all. Right? The church needs generous people like that. Not just money. Time, possessions, labor, it is truly better to give than to receive. Number six, leaders. The one who leads, leads with zeal. The church needs strong leaders who are above reproach, who organize and administrate the variety of functions and ministries going on in the body. Same words used in 1 Timothy 3, of those who manage their own households, and 1 Timothy 5, those who rule well. These people who are sort of a, a governing mindset, they think structurally, they're strategic, detail-oriented, they're godly go-getters. They may not be teachers, but they have zeal for the Lord's house, like Jesus did. And they want to see it used properly for the glory of God. We need people like that, especially in a time of sabbatical, where there is a visible void of leadership. I encourage you to lead one another with zeal and to rely on the other leaders that you've chosen to represent this church. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Last one, almost there. Mercy. Like your grandma used to say, mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy, of course, is showing pity on those who are in trouble, those who are in despair. Mercy is not overly interested in how people got where they are, but meeting people where they are. The kinds of people when you're in a room and somebody's crying across the room, you stop everything you are doing and you go and you minister to them. 
This is the person who can't sleep at night because they are burdened with the troubles of others. Of all the seven that are mentioned in Paul's list here, I actually think this may be the greatest need in our congregation. People of mercy, people of compassion, people of grace. Beloved, if you have this gift, use it, and use it with cheerfulness. Cheerfulness, we get our word hilarity, hilarious. There's a sense of approval, acceptance, willingly serving with joy and goodwill from the heart, unconditionally expecting nothing in return. Mercy meets people where they are. Mercy accepts and approves others as a brother or sister, regardless of differences. And they mean it with a smile on their face. And there we go. We're done. Should I pray? Let me put a bow on it. You've got to use your gifts. And you've got to do it the right way. I can't wait to come back after six weeks and meet with Jay and Jack, and they've just got this notebook full. You won't believe how this guy was serving. They're just going to have pages and pages of testimony, right? I've never seen this person live in such humility. I've, I, you wouldn't believe the act of mercy that this lady showed in our congregation. You know, so-and-so is really stepping up as a leader. So-and-so, you know, taught during core doctrine. I mean, phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. With zeal. I'm just, just looking forward to hearing stories like that. But it won't happen unless you think with sober judgment and you commit yourself to serving as an individual member connected with the other members under the corporate umbrella of unity in Christ. And that is something beautiful. That is something matchless that this earth knows nothing about. What if we came as Christ came? Not to be served, but to serve. To lay down our lives as friends. Greater love has no one than this. So let's be friends. Father, thank you for this gift of the church. Help us to serve in like manner as you served. Help us to build up this body with the grace that you provided, which we take to be enough. And help us to stay united, to kill pride, and to love one another mercifully as you and Christ have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.